that is so true, regardless of what happens in our world, regardless of uh, our abilities or any of that. Yet not I, but through Christ and in everything. And we give you thanks for that this morning. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 6. One through 7, actually. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We'll actually stop right there. Father, again, as we come to you, we come with your word. It's inerrant, it's perfect, it is sufficient, it is infallible. Uh, These are not human words written down as people thought about you. They are your voice in written form. They bear absolute authority. And so let us come with humility and with hunger and with deep curiosity about who you are and about what you have said. Bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 5, these verses obviously have to do with the the tabernacle. In verse 5, Paul makes the statement that these things we cannot now speak of in detail. Uh, That was certainly true because of the limits he had on the scroll that he was working with. There are uh, a number of chapters, Exodus 25 through 30, really deals with the temple and the priesthood and how all of that, that functioned. Uh, It also really wasn't necessary for Paul to speak in detail about these things because of his audience. He was writing to Jews. This was their world. This was their culture. They knew the temple. They knew the the tabernacle. They knew uh, all of these things, and they had been taught about them in detail. So he could refer to them uh, kind of in a summary way and then go to draw application about them as the chapter moves on. The honest truth is that most Christians kind of rush through these kinds of places in the Bible. We're, we're waiting to get to something or looking for something that really is, uh, is punchy and significant. So in, in verse 11, it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's really powerful stuff. That's really significant truth. And what we can do sometimes is is just kind of let our eyes glaze over as we go through the details. And we want to get through to that nugget. 
Well, here's the thing. All of scripture is inspired by God. It's all God breathed. This is here by the, by the express will of God. Certainly for the Jews who, who knew what Paul was talking about in summary, he could go on to make application. But for us who are not Jews, I've got to say it's kind of too bad that we don't pay more attention. There's some really wonderful riches just beneath the surface of this. And we're going to dig just a little bit over the, the next few weeks to talk about the tabernacle and the significance of the tabernacle to us. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John writes this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. The word dwell there is simply the verb form of tabernacle. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. I think the better we understand the original tabernacle, the better we understand the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And the better we understand our eternal destiny as Christians. So over the next four, four weeks, beginning today, we're going to look at the tabernacle as a place of communion with God, as a place of reconciliation with God, as a place of God's provision, and a place of fellowship with God. So to begin with, the tabernacle is a place of communion. Um, let's remember that when the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt, they lived in houses. We know that because at Passover, part of the instruction was to take the blood of the lamb and to apply it over the door, over the, the, the lintel of the door. A tent doesn't have a lintel. And so even though they were slaves, even though they were in bondage, and I don't dismiss that, they had a permanent place. They had a place that was theirs. They had some place that they could call home, some place that they could go to. A along with deliverance from slavery came a new nomadic life where they were no longer in one place, but rather lived in a tent. And they moved from place to place as Yahweh himself led them through the wilderness. If you were there at the time, you would come out of your tent in the morning. The, the whole camp was arranged carefully and stayed in that arrangement when they were camped. And so you always knew from your tent where the tabernacle was. And you could walk out of your tent in the morning and look toward the tabernacle and see a pillar of, of cloud hovering above the tabernacle. As a reminder, God is in the camp. At night when you went out, there would be a pillar of fire Reminding you that while you were asleep, God was not asleep. You might have been in that location for a day or a week or a month, but sooner or later, that cloud during the day, maybe the fire at night would begin to move. And everybody in the camp would, would begin to tear down everything. And the Levites would, would, would pull down the tabernacle. They would pack it all up carefully. And they would follow the, that pillar of cloud and fire. And so there is a constant sense of transience in the camp. It, it simply was not a permanent place. But there was one thing in the camp that was permanent. There was one thing in the camp that was always fixed, that was a constant, and that is the presence of God in the tabernacle. That was always the same. Several times in the book of Exodus, especially in chapter 25, God says in chapter 25 of Exodus, verse 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. 
He then later says that he will meet with Moses there in verse 22. And he says, the bread of the presence is in Yahweh's presence in Exodus 25, 30. There's this constant sense that God is in the tabernacle, that God has come to dwell there with his people. He has come there for the sake of communion. And so if you imagine that you are back in that ancient world, in that ancient day with those people, and you're going to go over to the tabernacle. As you approach, the first thing that you would see would be the outer courtyard. Now, the scale was pointed out to me this morning that the scale here is not exactly right, but work with me here. The outer tabernacle, or rather the outer courtyard, was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. It had a 30-foot opening facing the east as the opening to the holy place the tent of God, the tabernacle of God, faced the east. You see it covered with a seven and a half foot high linen drape all around so that nobody can peer in to what is happening in the courtyard. As you move through the opening then, you see the altar where sacrifices are offered and you see the the large bronze basin that held water where the priests washed their hands and their feet. And then you see the tabernacle, the tent of God. Now, there isn't a word tabernacle. The the word is tent. The English language adds the word tabernacle as a a way of of exalting and celebrating the glory of this place. But the word is tent. There's not a separate word in the Hebrew for tent and tabernacle or in the Greek for tent and tabernacle. It's 45 feet long. It's 15 feet high. It's 15 feet wide. In that tent, in the heart of it, in the core of it, in the Holy of Holies, at the far back, hidden from from everyone's eye except the high priest once a year, is the Ark of the Covenant, the place where Moses goes to speak with Yahweh while he is alive, where Aaron makes atonement for the sins of the people. And you you know, as, as you stand there in that courtyard, as you look, maybe you would think about the temples in Egypt, which are large, granite, structures faced with limestone that glowed white the uh the 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 pyramids of Giza if the sun hit them in the right way would have been blinding you think about the gold inlay that was used on them and the paint and and the permanence of them and the weight of them and, and the majesty of them and and maybe it strikes you that this large tent in front of you isn't very impressive After all, the outer layer is simply leather. It's either made from porpoise skin or from badger skin. We're not sure how to quite translate that word. Porpoise would, both both kinds of cured leather would be waterproof. Badgers were available in the area uh, of various sorts. Porpoise is certainly out of the Red Sea. Either one's possible. But whatever it is, it's, it's a dark brown, dusty, scarred-up, well-traveled tent. And, and maybe it even strikes you that, that Yahweh, in coming to dwell in the camp, has humbled himself. That he, in a sense, has left the glory of heaven to take up residence in a, a tent that looks pretty much identical to the one you live in. You also know that looks are deceiving and that there's more to the tabernacle than meets the eye. You know that that outer layer that you can see 
is, is followed by six other layers. There are seven total. There, there's a layer of ram skin that had been dyed red. There was a layer of goat skin. Then there are three layers of woolen fabric. One dyed blue, one dyed purple, one dyed red. And then there is on the inside that, that the priests going into the holy place could see fine linen, which is going to be more or less white. And it's all sandwiched between those layers that nobody will ever see. And, and you may not know this, standing there looking at it and, and sitting here today, you may not understand this, but those dyes were expensive. The purple dye came from a, uh, an ocean snail. And it took 250,000 snails to make an ounce of dye. The, the tent coverings are at least 280 square yards of material. I don't know how much. I, I don't do fabric. I don't do sewing. I don't know how much dye it would take to dye 280 square yards of wool. But I imagine it was more than an ounce. The red dye was taken from an insect, the, the cochineal or cochineal insect, there is a South American variety. There's also a Middle Eastern variety. And the female of the insect, just for about two weeks during her mature lifespan, has produced this dye within herself as she's producing eggs. And so they would have to be collected. The blue also came from an ocean, uh, an ocean animal, an ocean mollusk. You think about the incredible expense just in the tent, and it's hidden. You can't see it. All you get to see is that outside, plain, brown layer. Now, what the Jews at that time didn't understand, what we understand now because of the New Testament scriptures, is that the desert tabernacle, the tent of God, is a picture of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And, and maybe you even caught it in my description of it. On the outside of it, you have plain brown leather, like every other tent out there. On the inside, something that almost nobody ever gets to see is, is pure linen, white linen, the holiness of God, and sandwiched between things that nobody ever sees are these various colors. And those colors in, in various ways, and interpreters handle them differently because it's symbolic and because they're not really explained to us. There, there are some who say the ram skin dyed red is a picture of Jesus as the, the Lamb of God. That the, the wool fabric dyed red is a picture of the priest who offers the blood, the blue is a is a usually blue is a color of labor. It was the color of of uh, low income people, and Jesus certainly humbled himself. But right next to that blue is the purple of royalty, because he is God. He is the King of Kings. And there's something really wonderful here in in Hebrews chapter nine verses two and three. It says there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one. And then in verse 3 it says, behind the second veil there was another tabernacle, which was the Holy of Holies. So the desert tent that you, that you see here kind of vaguely on the screen was really two tabernacles. There's the outer, which is coarse and rough. There's the inner, which is fine and royal. And that just makes me 
think of the two natures of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. And that the eternal Son of God humbled himself, emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, and took on human flesh. He wrapped himself in a, a tent of human flesh. I think it's a subtle, lovely picture of the incarnation that the Lord placed in his scripture. After his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, Jesus caught up with two of his disciples who were going to Emmaus. They were getting out of Jerusalem Sunday morning. The sun had come up. The Sabbath is over. It's safe to travel. They're getting out of town. Jesus is dead. He's in the grave. There's no point hanging around. He catches up with them. He has a brief discussion with them and finds out that they don't believe. And then he says, you're foolish ones not to believe everything that the prophets have said. And then beginning with Moses, he explained to him everything in the scriptures concerning himself. I think he had to have described this and said, God gave you a picture of me 1,400 years ago, a picture nobody ever understood until Jesus himself came. Well, why construct the tabernacle? Why construct the tent of God in this way? It's because God had always intended to be with his people. He had always intended to be with his people, going back to creation. It was never his intention to create man and then gaze down at a distance or look at man like man was in an aquarium or a zoo. So he comes walking in the garden. He comes and speaks to Abraham. He wrestles with Jacob. He speaks to Moses face to face. In a a few chapters in Daniel, Justin is going to reach the the chapter where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse to bow and worship a false god, and they're thrown into a furnace. And there is one like a son of man walking with them. God was with them in that furnace. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacled or tented. God intended to be with his people from the very beginning. All of this is the work of the triune God from creation and redemption and communion. In the tabernacle, God the Father comes to dwell with his people Israel. In Jesus Christ, God the Son takes on human flesh to dwell with us. And I would never say this if the scripture didn't say it, but the scripture tells us that as Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's too much for us to take. If the scripture didn't tell us we are the house of God, the tent of God, the tabernacle of God, it would be nothing but arrogance to say we are the temple of God. But that's what scripture tells us, that we are the temple of God. None of this was our plan. This was all devised in the mind of God before creation ever took place. The desert tabernacle was God's idea. Adam never said to God, why don't you build a tent and live with us? Moses didn't say that. Abraham didn't say that. Joshua didn't say that. God said, this is what I'm going to do. No one ever asked the Son of God to take on human flesh and to live among us as a human being. And the truth is, nobody ever asked the Spirit of God to take up permanent residence within us. That, too, was God's purpose, was God's plan. Jeremiah 32, 28, uh, one of the, the final outcomes of the, uh, the New Covenant, we see it three times in Jeremiah and three times in Ezekiel, 
God says at the close of that statement about the new covenant, they shall be my people and I will be their God. So the tabernacle in the desert, that, that tent was a picture of God's intention to be in communion with his people always. And we see that idea more than 30 times from Genesis to Revelation, and it's always due to God's commitment to redeeming a people for his name and then dwelling with them. That desert tabernacle built by Moses would travel with the people. It's absolutely true to say that the people accompanied the tabernacle, but I think it's equally true to say the tabernacle accompanied the people. The tabernacle gave way to the temple during the reign of Solomon. For a thousand years, the people of Israel were obliged to come to a place. There was just one place on the surface of the earth. Just one place. And then following the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell permanently within the people of God, making them into his holy temple. And it begins with this illustration of a dusty leather-covered tent in the wilderness. And then the Lord traces that idea and develops that for us to show us what the future of his saints will be. Now, we're closer to that reality than than uh, the Jews in the wilderness were. They didn't understand what it meant to be born again. They didn't understand what it meant to be converted or regenerated, to be new creations. They didn't understand what it meant to be granted the very righteousness of the Son of God. We understand those things. We We live within something of the reality of those things, but there's more to come. And we haven't yet seen everything that God is going to do. So in... In uh, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's the ultimate end. That's the ultimate purpose of this communion with God. So let's bring this home. What do we do with this? Let let me give you four things. First, we rejoice. We rejoice. Jesus Christ took on the burden of sin to redeem sinners to himself because our creator wants a relationship with his people. He doesn't need it. He he, he isn't isn't lifeless without it. He's been in control of everything from the very beginning. But all who trust in Jesus alone for salvation are reconciled to their God and creator. And the wonder and the glory of this should fill our hearts and our minds with joy. Nothing compares with that. 
You can look at what, what's going on in our world and in our time, and nothing in this world should ever be able to stifle the joy that we have and our rejoicing in the presence of our God within us, who is not a God far away, but because of the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us. We should rejoice. Second, we can hope. What you encounter in this life is, is not the final, it's not the end of all things. We, we survive this life to go on to the next life. And that's true whether someone is uh, dying in their sin and dies in their sin or is redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Those who die in their sin here will live again to face eternal torment and the judgment of God. Those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who believe in him, will live beyond this life. So Paul says this, and it's something we can say. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We can increase our hope while we live this life. Not our hope in this life, because there is no hope in this life. We can increase our hope while we live this life because of the promise of God himself regarding salvation and eternity. The sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we rejoice, we, we hope. Third, we speak. We come across other Christians all the time who are struggling. They're hurting. They need to grow in their faith, and the Lord is taking them through lessons of growth, and those lessons are hard. And part of our job as, as fellow saints with them is to remind them that God is with us, that we've not been abandoned by him, that we have not been set aside, and that God being with us is not a poetic thought. It's not an abstract thought. God isn't with us as other people are with us. God is truly with us. God is spirit, and so when the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, God is taking up residence within us. We can exhort unbelievers to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ because the truth is that their creator longs to know them, and he has an elect number that he knows by name and by face that he is bringing to himself. And while I don't think that it's theologically accurate to say that God loves everybody the same way, he has a love for his creation. His saving love is not the same. His saving love for his elect, even if they have not yet come to him in faith, is utterly powerful. And it's a love that won't be denied. So we can rejoice, we can hope, we can speak, and finally we can rest. We can rest. We can rest in this truth that our God sought us when we had no interest in him. We, we rest in the peace that Jesus gave us by his death and resurrection. We rest in the promise of eternity with him. We rest in the life he gives us today by his providence. We rest in the unfailing promise that he will never abandon us and that no suffering and no person can ever take us away from him. We rest in the truth that he is infinitely more committed to our salvation and perseverance than we are. And he will not fail. He will not fail. 
There's no such thing as a human being who hasn't faced suffering. There's no such thing as a human being who hasn't wondered at some point, where do I belong? Where is home? Where, where is the place I belong? 3,400 years ago, the Lord gave his people Israel a three-dimensional picture of what would be his eternal relationship with his people. A tent that resembles Christ, that holds the promise for us of the presence of God. And we remember that at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil in the temple was torn from the top top down. And now Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4, we have access to him. And one day he is going to bring us home. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for your graciousness to us and your kindness. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen our faith in you this morning. I ask that you would grip us more tightly than we could ever grip you. I ask, Lord, that you would, as we examine ourselves, that you would confirm our salvation. And that if we have trusted in anything else, if we've trusted in our good works, if we've trusted in our efforts or in rites or rituals, if we have simply presumed that because we are your creation, that we will be with you for all eternity. That you would convince us of the need to trust in Jesus Christ alone. We live in a world of of religious plurality and pluralism where the overwhelming number of people, including people in our world who call themselves Christians, believe that every, every religion is ultimately the same and every way is ultimately the same, and that's a lie. There is one way for salvation. There is one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And so, Lord, as you confirm us in you, as you strengthen our faith in you, and you, you break out of our hands anything else that we tend to cling to or tend to look to, we ask that you would fill us with compassion and courage to speak to those who are trapped in false systems that may use the name Jesus, but ultimately are trusting in something other than Jesus himself. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us today and ask that you would remind them of your love. Draw them to your word. Bring them back to us safely and glorify yourself in our midst for your glory. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. We are dismissed.